breaking news. I have breaking news. After hundreds of years, the world's best pastor has been found. And no, it is not me. The world's best pastor has been found, though, and he is sure to meet everyone's personal qualifications for what they feel a pastor should be and to meet all of their expectations. It's great news, right? Let me, let me tell you what they found, this, this uh, world's best pastor that has been found. He preaches exactly 20 minutes and then sits down. He condemns sin, but never, ever hurts angers, or offends anyone. He is an energetic 25-year-old and has been preaching for over 30 years. He is able to make everyone feel comfortable because he is a combination of virtually every person. For example, he's tall and short. He's thin and a little on the heavy side. He has one brown eye and one blue, hair parted in the middle with the left side blonde and straight, the right brown and wavy. He has a strong desire to work with teenagers and spends all his time with the old folks. He makes 15 calls a day to the church members, spends all his time evangelizing the unchurched, and is never out of his office. He smiles all the time and keeps a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him serious about his work. Man, I'm really glad that that is not what God looks for or expects from his pastors and church leaders. Whew, boy, that would be terrible. Terrible. Lots of disappointed people. Well, we are continuing in our biblical church leadership series, and we're in the area of the series where we're going to be talking about what elders must be. That's why I presented that Uh, Very obviously ironic piece of uh, fiction there. Uh, What elders must be. We've talked about the distinction between elders and deacons, the biblical distinction there of the offices, that it's not one office, rather two separate offices with separate functions. Uh, We've talked about what elders are to do. We've spent two weeks on that. And now we're going to talk today together about what elders must do. Be, what they must be, their character, their important qualifications and standards of character. You know, a very common, well-known statement I'm sure you've heard, you've probably said it even, is God doesn't call the qualified, He qualifies the called. And we hear that and we, we, we think that sounds great and, you know, we, we probably even say amen to that, but... Is that really the pattern and practice we see in the pages of Scripture? That's the question we need to ask related to that statement. And really any statement that you hear, uh, any meme you see, any caption you see on social media, online, it is always a great idea. Indeed, it's crucial, church, that we stop as we hear things, and, and we don't just stop with them sounding good, that we actually say, Does that match Scripture? Is that what Scripture says? Is that the truth of God's Word? It might sound really good and and inspiring even, but is it what Scripture lays out? And so that's what we need to do with something like that familiar statement. Uh, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Is that really the pattern 
and the practice we see in the pages of Scripture. In His Word, God has made it clear that there are very specific and significant standards and qualifications required of those that would serve as elders and shepherds of the church. That's not because God is being judgmental or harsh or critical. No, it's because He knows that character directs conduct. Character directs conduct. And that's true for everyone, not just for elders. Uh, I think we all understand that. I think we all uh, would agree with the fact that, that who we are at our core determines and drives what we do or what we don't do. Who we are drives that. Who we are determines what we do and what we don't do. So character directs conduct. And it's true for everyone, but it is especially true of those that are elders and shepherds of the local church. And it's especially important for them to understand this, that character directs their conduct, and therefore character is of the utmost importance. The character of the elder of the church is absolutely vital to make sure it matches the character that Scripture calls for and the qualifications that are established. So with that being said and that in mind, uh, let's look at what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to Timothy about the character qualifications that every elder or prospective elder must have and must display. And I just want to say, as we're getting ready to look at 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, where these qualifications are, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, though these qualifications and characteristics are specific to elders, they are applicable to every Christian. So, don't check out, okay? Don't check out just because you think, okay, these are qualifications of elders. Uh, I'm not that, so I can just kind of tune out and check out. No, not at all, because these qualifications that are specific for elders are absolutely applicable and relevant to every single believer. I hope you see that and grasp that as we look at this together. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has this to say. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires or desires to the office of overseer, that's another word for elder, same role, same office, different word, same exact concept and idea behind that, overseer, elder, shepherd, all comes together. Anyone aspires to that office, the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Or you could say, a high calling. Verse 2, therefore, in light of that, in light of the fact that it is a noble task or a high calling that any elder aspires to, therefore, an overseer must be, not should be, it would be good if he were, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. We've spent time talking about that importance and what that involves, that it's guarding and guiding and providing for the sheep, the flock, the, the congregation. 
that it's also something that extends beyond just preaching behind the pulpit, that what I'm doing right now is certainly part of that, but it's not limited to what I'm doing, that able to teach involves a variety of different expressions and contexts. It involves even one of our elders doing what he does faithfully every week, which is preparing gospel-focused, biblically-driven songs that, that draw our hearts upward and take us before the throne, preparing us for what the Spirit of God will say to us. It all is part of that. So, above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Just in this verse alone, what a list, right? What a, what a collection of qualifications. I want to I focus in on a few of those things that are mentioned just in verse 2 here. I want us to really stop and focus and have our attention drawn to some of these specific things that Paul is pointing out. They're just too important to breeze past. So in the first part of 1 Timothy 3.2, where Paul says an overseer must be, must be above reproach, and then follows that with the other qualifications that we just read, when the phrase must be is there, Paul originally is using a present active verb. And it literally means must be right now and continue to be. That's what he's saying. So when he says that an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, he's saying they must be right now all of those things, and they must continue to be. There's no letting up. There's no stopping of any of those very important qualifications. And the importance of what an elder must be, it needs to be understood that that's already. It's what they already are before being appointed to the office of elder. In Titus 1.6, it's made even clearer what Paul is trying to convey here, where Paul writes, if any man is. Uh, When he writes to Titus, he gives a mirror, a parallel list of qualifications to Titus, just like he did to Timothy, of what should be expected of an elder or a prospective elder. And he says there, if any man is, then he can go on and be considered worthy of being an elder. So the idea is, it's who and what this person, this man of God is right now, before being appointed already, and then what he will continue to be after he's appointed and serving as an elder. Are you with me there? You see that connection? Okay. So that means for every church, you don't appoint a man to the office of elder with the idea that that appointment itself will somehow magically make him elder qualified. That's That's not how it works. No, you appoint men who are already currently in character and action, not perfectly... Okay, that's, that's not going to be true of anybody. So we're not talking about perfection. But we are talking about someone that consistently, habitually, is already being what an elder is supposed to be. That's the idea. That's who you look to appoint. Also in verse 2, when he says, 
above reproach. An overseer or elder must be above reproach. That literally means nothing to take hold upon. There's nothing in his life to grab onto and take hold of. It's not referring to being sinless, okay? So let's, uh, let's establish that really quickly. It's not referring to being sinless because obviously no one can be sinless. But it means that there are no legitimate concerns about the man's life that anyone can grab onto and exploit and hold up as reason why they should not be serving as an elder. Nothing sticky about his conduct or lifestyle. In other words, it's being a man of Teflon character. You know, Teflon pots and pans where nothing is supposed to stick to them. It's that kind of idea. That there's nothing sticky in terms of sinfulness about the elder's life. Last but not least, in verse 2, when Paul wrote, the husband of one wife, the elder must be the husband of one wife, that literally means, and is much better translated, one woman man. One woman man. As opposed to being a ladies man. The point is that an elder must be completely faithful and devoted to his wife. He doesn't flirt with or show romantic interest in other women. Period. Period. And don't think that this was just a big problem in Paul and Timothy's day. Sadly, this charge and this challenge that we read here is just as applicable and just as needed in the church today, if not more. I could give you so many sad, unfortunate, tragic statistics of all the pastors in a variety of different churches and denominations that have fallen in this area. It is absolutely astounding and heartbreaking. And so with the fact that this kind of thing, this particular area of sin, the sin of adultery and fornication, the the sexual type sin, is so easily accessible in our day and age. This charge for marriage integrity, for every elder being a one-woman man, this is probably needed even more than what it was in Paul and Timothy's day. So those are the things, just in verse 2, I really wanted to draw your attention to and clarify. Because if we're not careful, we can misunderstand what's being intended there, what was originally expressed. The other aspect of the fact that this was uh, one woman man, where he says the husband of one wife, and, and then I'll, I'll leave this and we'll move on to the rest of the passage. But, but before I leave, I just do want to point out, that does and should open up the consideration of qualified elders much more than what we have traditionally limited ourselves to. I will say that. There are men that would be absolutely qualified and absolutely deserving of consideration for qualification as elder that have been completely looked over and not even thought of because of the fact that at one point in their life they were married before. And there was a divorce, and now you know they have a different wife. But if you don't take the reading that was not intended and that was not at all what Paul was expressing as he wrote this originally, then that should by all means open up consideration. 
That being said, let's continue on in our, in our look at these qualifications, the rest of them that Paul provides here. So verse 3. Verse 3. And I'll remind you of the must-be requirement that is the umbrella over all of these other qualifications. Must be right now and will continue to be. Verse 3. Not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, which would mirror the Lord Jesus Himself, the chief shepherd. He tells us in Matthew 11, Come to Me all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. So the elder, every elder, every shepherd of the church under Jesus is to follow his lead and to be gentle, not violent, not quarrelsome. And Paul continues, not a lover of money, not greedy, not one who chases after money, one who is free of that particular addiction and who can say, money is not an idol for me. Not a lover of money, not, not greedy or chasing after that. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity. That brings to mind what Paul expresses in Ephesians 6, 4, where he says, Fathers, don't provoke or stir up your children to anger or to wrath, but rather bring them up in the admonition and instruction of the Lord. The idea is to meet your kids, your children, where they are, understand where they are, and in compassion and in love, raise them and train them in the Lord. And don't do something that just provokes them. Don't turn them away from the Lord in your parenting. Rather, turn them to the Lord in how you parent them and how you instruct them with all dignity. Keeping His children submissive. I want to point out the idea there is not keeping his children perfect because, of course, that will never happen, right? And you as a parent are never going to be perfect. So that's not what Paul is intending here. Don't expect your elder to keep his children to these perfect little angelic things. That's not ever going to happen. No, the idea is keep their children submissive to them and to those over them. Submission is the key. That's what should drive the elder as they parent and raise their children. Submissive to the Lord first, submissive to them as the parent, then submissive to others that are over them throughout their life and in the church itself. And then he gives a reason why that's important. Why an elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Verse 5, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household how will he care for God's church? That's a good and important question, right? Howard Hendricks, who was a very, very uh, famous trainer of preachers, used to say to men in seminary that he had preparing to lead churches, he would say this, if your Christianity and leadership isn't working at home, don't export it. Don't export it. The Old Testament provides a great example of what Paul is expressing here in, in 1 Timothy 3, 4-5 through 5 that we just looked at and what Howard Hendricks was trying to instill in his students. And we see a great example in the very sad story of Eli, the high priest, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. 
Eli was the man that raised and trained Samuel after he was dedicated to the Lord's service by his mother, Hannah. Eli's sons also served as priests under him in the tabernacle. But they, they didn't even have personal relationships with God, and they didn't honor him at all. Instead, they consistently acted in unbelievably, extremely sinful, evil ways. First, uh, we're told that they would keep and eat whatever meat they wanted from the sacrifices. As people would bring meat to offer for the sacrifice, as the sacrifice was done, instead of only eating what was specifically commanded and designated for the priest, they took a three-pronged fork and just dug into the pot and took out whatever they wanted. Second, Eli's sons were sleeping with the women who were dedicated to the service of the tabernacle. So the women that were there working in the tabernacle, serving, they would completely manipulate their position and actually sleep with the women that were dedicated to the work of the tabernacle and to the Lord. Obviously, that was against God's law concerning adultery and against God's standard for any priest. And that shocking evil behavior was apparently widely known by all the people. And when the report came back to Eli, he he did rebuke his son. Scripture records that. But he did nothing to make them stop. So he didn't actually follow through at all. He rebuked them, but he didn't follow through with any action. He did nothing to make them stop, which he could have done, both as their father and as the high priest they were serving under. And Eli's failure to deal with his son's rebellion and sin, along with their own failure to repent, resulted in Israel's total defeat in battle, the Ark of the Covenant being captured, and the violent death of Hophni and Phinehas as part of that defeat. And that was then immediately followed by Eli himself dying in a pretty dramatic way. Scripture tells us he was heavy, he was older, and when he heard the news that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the enemy, he fell backwards and broke his neck and died. Pretty tragic story that teach us some pretty important things. And that's really what Paul is trying to express as he's writing these qualifications about the elder managing his household well. All that to say, it's important for God's man to have his house in order in order for him to be an effective leader in God's house. That's really what's trying to be expressed here. It's important that he has his house in order in order for him to be an effective leader in God's house. In other words, he is guiding and directing and leading his whole household to God. He's modeling Christ-likeness. Not perfectly, but consistently modeling Christ-likeness for his whole family. And he's, he's showing a good picture of the Father to the children that he is the Father of. And he's, he's leading all of them closer to God, not farther away from them. And he's dealing with sin when it needs to be dealt with. He's not picking up the rug and sweeping it under. He's not turning a blind eye or a deaf ear to the sinfulness that might be present and will be present in every family and every household. No, he's willing to courageously, biblically, in a spirit-driven way to deal with that sin 
and to bring about repentance in the life of his children and the life of his family. Because if he's not willing to do that, if he's not willing to confront and correct sin when that needs to happen in his own family, how could we expect that an elder would be willing and courageous enough to do that with the church, right? It has to start at home if he's going to be faithful to do it in the house of the Lord and in the household of faith. All right, so with that in mind, let's go ahead and look at verse 6 as we continue to look at these very important qualifications. Verse 6, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And what you can infer there, reading between the lines, is that humility is an absolute qualification of every elder. An elder must be humble. And the chances for a recent convert, a newly saved person, to be puffed up, to be arrogant, to be filled with conceit and pride, which is the pattern of the devil. That's what Satan's original sin was, if you recall. He said, I will exalt myself to be equal with the Most High. I will ascend the throne of heaven. I, 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 me, me, me. That was the original sin in creation. Pride arrogance. And we're all capable of falling into pride and into arrogance and conceit, but those of us who have just stepped into the Christian life, we are more susceptible than others. We have a bigger target on our back in this way than others. And so Paul's saying, no, don't select somebody who is a recent convert to the faith as your elder, because given that responsibility, given that authority, he may very well be puffed up and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So you notice that Satan is ready and waiting with two traps to spring on every elder. The first is pride and arrogance, the lack of humility. And the second is to tarnish their testimony or reputation with those outside the church. This is so important. So important. I mean, this particularly, verse 7, that the elder must be thought of well by outsiders. In other words, by those outside of the church walls. By those outside of the body of Christ. We don't spend enough time thinking about that. We don't make that as important as it should be. Just as I said of the statistic regarding elders and pastors that fall in in the sexual area of sin, there are just as many unfortunate statistics of pastors who have ruined their ministry, their families, their churches, because they fell, maybe not in a sexual manner, but they fell in other ways. They fell in integrity. They did something to tarnish their integrity, their testimony, their statement. They made compromises here, compromises there, and they ruined their reputation and testimony in the world outside. And how could we ever expect an unbelieving world to believe our message if they can't even hold the elder or the pastor of a church in any sort of high regard? Many, many times the reason people continue in their unbelief and their atheism 
and their denial of the truth of God is because they see people like me and like other elders who will say one thing, talk a really good game, go out these doors, and their lifestyle is a completely different thing. And they deny the very Lord they had just preached about by the way they live. An unbelieving world will never be able to believe any sort of message when their messenger is that way. So this is so important that the elder must be well thought of, that their reputation is strong, it's, it's intact, that they are a man of integrity out there, out there. So, full circle, coming full circle to where we began. Why all these serious qualifications? Why the need for all these very significant, specific qualifications? It's because of this reason. The chief shepherd, Jesus, the chief shepherd loves his sheep too much to just give them unqualified men as their shepherds. And aren't you glad for that? Aren't you thankful that the chief shepherd loves you too much to just give you eh, just any old unqualified man as your elder, as your shepherd? He loves his sheep. He loves the flock too much to do that, to just give the church unqualified men as their shepherds and overseers. And that's a good thing. Now, maybe after hearing and reading all of this, you're thinking, okay, that's all good and well, but can there be any realistic hope or expectation for anyone to meet these qualifications? And that's a fair question. That's a fair point. I mean, those qualifications, those are pretty significant. That's a tall order, right? But as we read when we began this passage, it's a tall task. It's a noble task. It's a high calling that we're talking about here. The office of elder. And the answer to that question, is is there any hope for or expectation for anybody to meet these qualifications? The answer is yes. Yes. And the reason why the answer is yes is because of this. This fact, this wonderful, constant truth. Jesus is very good at changing unqualified men into men qualified to lead his church. That's what Jesus has a perfect track record at doing. Because, of course, no one on their own is going to be qualified to lead the church. No one is going to have in themselves, naturally, humanly speaking, the qualifications necessary to be an elder of Christ's church. Not going to happen. If it were left to us, then no one would be able to meet these qualifications, including the Apostle Paul, who wrote to Timothy. Remember what Paul was before Christ stepped in and intervened and changed his life? He was the persecutor of the church before he became the apostle of it. And Jesus, Jesus intervened. Jesus invaded his life and drew him to himself saved him and said, okay, now I'm going to use you to go and bring thousands upon thousands to me. And he didn't stop with Paul. He takes every, every man who is totally unqualified in themselves, and by his grace and by the power of his salvation and the power and constant 
transforming work of His Spirit, He changes unqualified men into qualified men that are able to lead His church. Hallelujah. So, I leave you with this. Men? Men? Which of you have a God-given desire to serve in this way? Which of you have, if you're really honest, been given the aspiration of this office of elder or overseer, this tall or noble task and high calling? And what are you going to do about it? Which of you have been given that desire? You know it. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with that desire? And then for all of you, for the whole church, I say this. I challenge you in this way. Let's pray. Let's pray that God would indeed raise up and lead more men to this noble task and high calling. Would you, would you commit to praying that way? The church needs more elders, not less. So I know you already pray for me and for the others that are in leadership alongside of me, and we, we are so grateful for that. But in addition to praying for us, please pray that God would raise up more to join us, more qualified men in that way. And let's, let's go ahead and pray now together. Father, I thank You for Your Word, Your truth, the power of Your Word, the relevance of Your Word. And I thank You for making it so clear what You expect, what You require, the standards that must be in place for every elder of the church. And I thank You that though none of us in ourselves could ever be qualified, You don't exclude us from still being able to serve in this high and noble way. Because you and your Son and your Spirit make us qualified. Not by anything we do, but by your work, by your power in us. As we submit and surrender to the working of your Spirit, as we continue in sanctification, as we continue to die to sin and self By your grace and by your power, you make unqualified men into qualified men. And we thank you and praise you for that. And I pray that you would raise up more and more in this local body to shepherd and oversee and lead in humility your church. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.